And so we come now to the final chapter in the second, uh, in, in Paul's second and last correspondence to the Thessalonian church. And if you will recall, in his brief letter to this young church, Paul teaches and offers a corrective concerning the end times and the day of the Lord. There was a confusion about the second coming of Christ. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we read where Paul discusses the coming of the Lord to rapture the saints. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul discusses the day of the Lord that will consummate history. But confusion apparently remained. So Paul wrote a second letter to the church. In chapter 1, Paul again discusses the coming of the Lord. In chapter 2, Paul discusses the man of lawlessness who will oppose Christ. And then in chapter 3, Paul exhorts the church to live in light of the imminent return of Christ. This is the pattern when the second coming is addressed. There is an explanation and then exhortation. The New Testament is emphatic that Jesus is coming again. The Lord will return to the earth physically, powerfully, and unexpectedly. But Christ imminent, and thanks to our brother, Pastor King, if not immediate, we are still to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. There is no excuse to disconnect from the real world or to live irresponsibly or, as we will see later, Lord willing, next week, to live idly. That we are to look for the blessed hope in the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this letter begins with the reality of the day of the Lord. It ends with the responsibility of the saints as we live in these last days. And so chapter 3 begins with instruction on how to live in light of God's sovereign plan of redemption. And one of the keys to this instruction is the privilege and the power of prayer. We know that when Paul was writing this letter, he was writing from Corinth and he was having difficulties there. And the saints were facing difficulties themselves at Thessalonica, but Paul knew a way that they could help one another through these difficult times. He knew a way that we can help each other through difficult times. He says, in essence, you pray for me, and I'll pray for you. You see, there's a dynamic power that works when God's people Pray for each other, especially in the context and in the light of the Great Commission, of the delivering and the going forth of the gospel that is the word speeding ahead. But even here, even in our and Paul's praying for one another and our praying for one another, our focus is to be on the Lord. Paul and these Thessalonians indeed prayed for one another. 
But this primary concern for their mutual prayers were not merely for themselves or not even primarily for themselves, but it was about the Lord. It was about the Great Commission. It was about his gospel. It was about the Lord Jesus Christ and the salvation that is found in him and him alone. It was about the Lord. The Lord is mentioned four times in these five verses. And so in our passage today in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, we see three spiritual priorities that should consume our prayers for one another. We see that the word of the Lord speeding ahead, the faithfulness of the Lord in his word, and the direction of the Lord in his calling on us. If you would please take your copy of God's holy word and turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. We will be reading verses 1 through 5. Beginning in verse 1. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the, Lord of the, the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. And that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. This is God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. May he bless it in our hearing. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, sovereign Lord of all creation, we gather here in your holy presence, hearts united in gratitude and reverence, acknowledging your majesty and grace. We thank you for gathering us together as your people called according to your purposes and sustained by your steadfast love. Lord God, we, as we turn our thoughts to your word, especially to the message here in 2 Thessalonians, we humbly seek your guidance and wisdom. We are reminded, O oh God, of the immense power of prayer, not as a mere utterance, but as a profound means of participating in your sovereign plan. Help us, Father, to embrace this holy privilege, to pray earnestly and faithfully for the spread of your gospel. Lord God, may our prayers be a sweet aroma to you, ailing our hearts with your divine will and purpose. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would guard and strengthen us against the evils of this world, as you did for the Thessalonian church. Lord God, in a world of uncertainty and challenge, may we find our refuge in your unwavering faithfulness. Instill in us a spirit of perseverance and trust that we may stand firm in our faith, unshaken by the trials that we face. Gracious God, direct our hearts to the love of Christ and to the steadfastness of your promises. As we delve into the truths of your word, let us be transformed by the renewing of our minds. May the teachings of the Apostle Paul inspire us to a deeper faith, a greater obedience, and a more fervent commitment to your kingdom. 
Oh, Father God, we commit this time of worship and study into your hands, trusting that you will work in us and through us for your glory. In the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, we pray. Amen. So chapter 2 of this letter, as we saw last week, ends with Paul's prayer for the church at Thessalonica. We read there in verses 16 and 17 that, Now may the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. And so chapter 3 begins with a prayer request that Paul makes to the church. So Paul has prayed for them, and he asked them to pray for him. Verse 1 says, Finally, brothers, pray for us. It's interesting to think of Paul, at least on the surface of asking this, given the commission that he was given, given his background in education, And yet it is not unique, this request from Paul. Paul frequently solicited the prayers of the saints. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he says, Brothers, pray for us. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. The Thessalonians were brand new Christians, yet Paul didn't think that they were too little to pray for him. More importantly, perhaps, he didn't think that he was too big to ask for their prayers. Paul humbly requested, brothers, pray for us. This request in this, uh, has a grammatical emphasis that denotes a continual action. So Paul had assumed and knew that these Thessalonians were praying for him. But here, given the opposition that he has faced in the past and the opposition that he is facing, facing even now, he asked them to continually pray for him in this mission. So he solicited their ongoing prayers. Paul's example reminds us we never reach a place where we do not need others to pray for us. No matter how far along we feel that we are, no matter how mature we grow as Christians, no matter how large or expansive our ministries are, we never outgrow the need for prayer. Because the power of the gospel is in God. It is his word attended by the Holy Spirit. No amount of our skill, no amount of our passion, no amount of our own wills even are what ignites the gospel. Rather, it is God working through his spirit supernaturally. If we ever become too good for that, then we're not good enough by half. And we've forgotten our way. This prayer request also tells us that the Thessalonians needed to pray. And in turn for us, we need to pray. It seems silly to state such an obvious thing. But it is something that concerned Paul. The saints at Thessalonica were facing difficulties for which Paul prayed the Lord would comfort and establish them. But Paul did not consider these difficulties of these young Christians Uh, that they faced so great that he should not ask them to pray for him in his mission to proclaim the gospel. They needed to pray as much as they needed to be prayed for. I want to say that there's irony in that, but we know that when it is of the Lord, there is never truly any irony. 
But it is something, and we learn this from Job, that oftentimes this heavy load that we carry and that we lift, it actually lifts our burdens from us. In Job chapter 42, verse 10, we see uh, that the Lord, after restoring the fortunes of Job, he had restored them when he had prayed for his friends. Job's friends were not good friends. As he suffered, they showed up to question and condemn him rather than comfort him. Yet he prayed for them. And God intervened for Job uh, when he prayed for his friends. God has promised in so far as it is in his sovereign will that he will intervene when we pray for our friends. When you think about God, when you think about how he attends and how he is supernaturally ordained that he would work through the means of prayer, many friends should come to mind. Our brothers and sisters here in the church should come to mind. We should be encouraged. We should be given courage, as it were, to pray even more fervently for each other and for the gospel message and for its mission to the world that God would call all of those whom he has appointed to eternal life. You know, within the Reformed faith, we often don't think too much or too hard about God being sovereign in his ends. Once you get over the hump, as, if you will, of the Reformed faith, that seems to come naturally. But God is not only the God of his ends, he is also the God of means. And one of the means with which God has, has given us, this privilege that he's given us, is prayer. It's the age-old question. If God is sovereign in election, if God is sovereign in salvation, then what need is there for us to pray, to share the gospel, to go out to the ends of the earth? Well, as many of you know, it is the very fact that he is sovereign. And it is the very fact that he has ordained the means of prayer, along with other means, but the means of prayer to save and to call the lost, that we do pray all the more fervently so that the word would speed ahead, that it would go beyond even us in our small circle of friends, especially in this day, in modern times. We have the means to reach far and wide, Paul understood the benefits of mutual prayer. So he asked the saints to pray for him and his missionary team. Specifically, Paul makes two prayer requests concerning the word of the Lord here. In verse 1, he says, Finally, brothers, pray for us, that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. This request wasn't so much for Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, as it were, um, but more, it was a prayer for them in their efforts and in their mission in spreading the gospel, to spreading the word of the Lord. It's an affirmation of the primacy of the word of God. No one in the church is indispensable. This includes the Apostle Paul. This includes each one of us. But the word of God is. 
all that the church is and does is to be rooted and grounded in the word of God. One commenter says that too much Christian works these days is accomplished by human plans and promotion and not by the word of God. We trust in our programs, he goes on, and do not publish the word of God. I pray that this is never true of us. I pray that the Lord would give us a holy passion and a preoccupation with the word of God. That we would be disposed as God has called us to the speeding ahead of the word of God. I pray that it will continue to be preached and taught. That it will be believed and obeyed. That we will endeavor by the grace of God to share it, to defend it, and to pass it on to the next generation and to the ends of the earth. This requires prayer. Prayer and the word of God are inextricably tied together. Both must be alive and well for the church to be healthy. And so Paul asked the church to pray for the ministry of the word. Paul asked the saints to pray that the word of the Lord specifically may speed ahead. The verb that Paul uses here means to run. As is a favorite of Paul's, this is kind of an athletic term. Paul is very fond of using it. It is used of one who runs a race. Paul pictures the word as a strong runner, speeding ahead on its course. This prayer request makes an important statement about the nature of the word. The word of God is not dead. It is not idle, nor is it passive. It is alive and active and on the move, as it were. Paul, perhaps is evoking Psalm 147 in verse 15. There it says that he, that is the Lord, sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. This prayer request is also a statement about the urgency we ought to have for the progress of the word of God. If we believe the word of God, we should pray earnestly that the word of God would speed ahead and to reach those who are lost. But here in Paul's prayer, and in our prayer, we should see that we don't pray merely that the word would speed ahead. As we all know that the gospel, when it speeds ahead, when the gospel is proclaimed, it can reach a person's ears without reaching his or her heart. So Paul asked the saints to pray that not only would the word of the Lord speed ahead, but that it would be honored. This word translated honored in your Bibles can be translated as praised or glorified. This brings to mind Psalm 138. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness for you have exalted above all things your name and your word. God exalts his word as much as as he exalts his name. And it's God's will that this word be exalted among men. So pray that the word of God would be honored here in our church, here in our city, here in our state, in the nations, 
to the ends of the earth. The word of God is honored when it is affirmed and believed and obeyed. And so at the end of verse 1, Paul gives us a frame of reference for this. That is, he gives us a frame of reference of what does it look like when the word of God is honored? What does it look like when the word of God is glorified? What does it look like when the word of God drives down into the heart? He says, as happened among you. When Paul preached the gospel in Thessalonica, they honored it. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul writes, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. And even further back in chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians, we read that the faith of the Thessalonians had rang out to all the lands around them, that it had preceded them, that is, that the word of God had sped ahead. Paul seems to intimate that as he went out and shared the word, that this news of the Thessalonians and their faith had already paved a way. And here he is praying for that same thing to continue on. Paul asked the church to pray that what happened among them would happen in Corinth. And further on in his missionary journey, that the word of God would speed ahead and be honored. Paul testifies about the positive response of the word of God received in Thessalonica in verse 1. But in verse 2, Paul testifies about the negative response of the word received specifically in Corinth. In verse 1, Paul asked the saints to pray for the proclamation of the message, but in verse 2, he will ask them to pray for the protection of the messenger. In verse 1, we see Paul's humility. In verse 2, we see his humanity. He asked that the saints pray that we be delivered from wicked and evil men. Paul was doing the will and the work of the Lord, yet he still faced opposition. He faced opposition that he described as wicked and evil men. Wicked refers to stubborn. It can be translated unreasonable men who oppose the word. One commentator even calls them out-of-place men. That's an interesting way of looking at it. But Paul calls them evil men, indicating that they were actively involved in mischief to hinder the word. This out-of-place men, if you will, speaks to something of the opposition coming not only outside of the church, but most probably inside of the church. We see that there were false teachers and false teachings circulating even among the Thessalonians. We see that there was opposition at the church of Corinth. And we see that there was opposition for Paul even before he arrived in Thessalonica. This is about as specific as Paul gets about his opposition. If we did a wider study, we may be able to draw some more conclusions, but we know from the record of Paul's time in Corinth that he is referring to religious people, both outside and within the church, who opposed his work. 
but he doesn't spend too much time talking specifically about this opposition, at least not here. He mentions them only to make a prayer request, that we be delivered from wicked and evil men. And here the word deliver is the same word used in the Lord's Prayer, where Jesus teaches us to pray, deliver us from evil. This could be understood by evil in general, or like in the Lord's Prayer, from the evil one. So why does Paul ask for the saints to pray for deliverance? Well, for not all have faith. In a way, Paul did not take these personal attacks personally. Rather, he viewed them as hindrances to the word speeding ahead. So he asked the church to pray for his deliverance for the sake of that word speeding ahead. We know that Paul says that he is pulled two ways about whether it was better to die and go on to be with the Lord or to stay and continue on in his work. Here we see an expression of that. Well, secondly, we look at the faithfulness of the Lord. Verse 2 ends with a sad indictment. For not all have faith. Verse 3 begins with a wonderful assurance. But the Lord is faithful. For not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. We live in a world where loyalty and faithfulness is a scarce commodity. We're often left to ask, who can we trust? Some of us experience this, perhaps even in the past, in churches with brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul answers, but the Lord is faithful. His character never changes. His love never ceases. His compassion never ends. His promises never fail. His wisdom never errs. His promises never come short. His strength never wanes. One commenter writes, no matter what the state of the restless sea of humanity, be it the muted ebb and flow of indifference or the violent swell of fierce opposition, the Lord controls the waves and he is faithful in every circumstance. He is faithful in salvation. We read in 1 Corinthians 1.9, But God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ the Lord. He's faithful in temptation. In chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, we see no temptation has overtaken you that you cannot, uh, that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. God is faithful in confession. In, John 1, in 1 John 1, 9, he says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God is faithful in sanctification. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he says, He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. He is faithful in every circumstance. Lamentations 3 said, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Here in verses 3 and 4, Paul states that the Lord is faithful and can be trusted to do what needs to be done according to his will in us and that we can trust him no matter what our circumstances are. Further in verse 3, he says that he will establish you and guard you against the evil one. So there are two promises here. 
There is the promise of internal stability. Verse 3 says, he will establish you. The word establish means to confirm, settle, to support. In 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul prays the Lord would comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. This prayer request is a bold promise. Paul declares the Lord is faithful to make us strong and stable and settled in the faith. Likewise is the promise of external security. Verse 3 further goes on. He says, he will establish you and guard you against the evil one. In verse 2, Paul asked the saints to pray for his deliverance from wicked and evil men. Now in verse 3, he promises the saints that the Lord will guard them from the source of evil, the evil one. The suggestion is that when men work to hinder the progress of the word, it is not an issue of a mere interpersonal conflict or a personal opinion or human wisdom. It is, in actuality, spiritual warfare. Paul tells us this in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. People are never ultimately our ultimate problem, if you will. The enemy of our souls is at work to undermine the word and to weaken our faith. But the Lord is faithful to guard us against the evil one. The word guard here is a military term. It's used of a soldier who stands guard to protect against an enemy attack. Satan and his forces are in the invisible realm, plotting against the truth of the gospel, against the saints and against the church and against the kingdom. But the Lord stands guard to protect us from the evil one. Jude tells us that now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Well, moving on. Verse 4 is a word of commendation. Paul says, And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things we command. Here we see Paul speaking very pastorally. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul issued commands for the saints to live by. Now he commends them for their obedience to these commands. And he was confident that they would continue to obey in the days that were to come. Now we know that because of the questions that they have, because of what will come after this, Lord willing, next week, that they were not perfect. But here Paul is encouraging this commendation is an affirmation that believers in Thessalonica were true Christians. In the Great Commission, Jesus gives the mission of the church, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. 
Paul has confidence because true discipleship is characterized by a life of obedience. In Luke 6.44, Jesus asks, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? So here Paul commends the saints for their obedience to the word, but his confidence was not ultimately in the Thessalonians. Verse 4 tells us that Paul's confidence was in the Lord. There's a lot more here, but I think here we need to feel the tension between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. It is our Christian duty to obey what Scripture commands, yet we cannot take credit for any good thing that we do. At least not in the ultimate sense. We should not get upset when people do not recognize what we have done. We should not become puffed up by the praise of others. In all that we have done, we have not done anything at all. Christ did it all. It is all of Christ. Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13 say, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In verses 1 and 2, Paul makes a prayer request for the word of the Lord. In verses 3 and 4, Paul exhorts the saints to trust and obey with confidence in the faithfulness of the Lord. And so now in verse 5, Paul announces a benediction in which he entrusts the saints to the direction of the Lord. He says there, may the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. This prayer request really falls into three parts. May the Lord direct your hearts. The saints at Thessalonica faced various challenges, as we've read. But Paul didn't merely pray about their circumstances. We see in the prayer report recorded in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and in the prayer recorded in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and here in verse 5, instead we see that Paul prayed primarily for their hearts. The heart is the seat of personhood, the mind, the will, and the emotions. It is who we are underneath the skin, if you will. It's been said that when things are not going right in the lives of the church, the heart of the matter is usually the matter of the heart. Proverbs 4.23 wisely counsels, Keep your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Everything in life flows from the condition of your heart. So what is happening in you is more important than what is happening to you. Our spiritual disposition is more important than our surrounding circumstances, to put it another way. So Paul prays that God would work on their hearts, and so too ours. So like Paul, this should be the priority of our prayers for one another. This verb, direct, means to open a path or to clear away obstacles. God is able to do both. God is able to lead you in the way that you should go, and God is able to move the obstacles and opposition out of our way. 
Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6 says, Trust the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. In thinking about the direction of our hearts, Paul asked the Lord to direct their hearts to two destinations. He doesn't specifically ask for the saints to be directed to victory over our enemies or to provision or the needs of healing or hurts for solution to problems or cessation of trouble even. He prays that the Lord would direct their hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. We see in this phrase, the love of God can refer either to the saints' love for God or God's love for the saints. Either way is good. But in light of the context, it probably refers to the love of God for the saints. Paul prays that the Lord would lead the saints into a great assurance of God's love for them. God is love. I know that is too oft repeated and seldomly understood, but it is true nonetheless. And so anything that has to do with God, anything that has to do with his sovereign leading and directing over our life has to do with his love. Martin Luther said it well. He says, God does not love us because we are valuable, but we are valuable because God loves us. So when life is filled with bad news, it is to this good news that we should run for refuge. Romans 8, 35 and 39 says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so here we see that Paul also directs us to the steadfastness of Christ. This can refer to the steadfastness that Christ has or the steadfastness that he gives. But the word steadfastness translates a verb that means to be under a heavy load. Another way to put it is that it is Christ's perseverance. It is the Lord who works in us and through us. And so even in the face of horrible and terrible consequences and, 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 and opposition. We are not to quit. We are to be strengthened. We are to be strengthened in the speeding ahead of the Lord, in our prayer for it, in our part that God has graciously included us in the Great Commission and bringing in the elect from the nations throughout all time until the last day. Christ himself possessed and exhibited his steadfastness, his perseverance, his endurance during his earthly life and ministry. And he enables us who trust in him to access this steadfastness for the burdens that we have to carry. 
or it is looking towards his perseverance through his sufferings, through his endurance, that we are strengthened in Christ. Hebrews chapter 12 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings to us so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It's amazing that we are called to participate in God's calling in of his people. That we as broken vessels are employed gracefully into spreading the gospel and to sharing the word with our lives and our words. That the word of God may speed ahead, that it may go before us. And we should be thankful for that. And we should look to the perseverance of Christ when we face opposition. Let's pray.